0: This is Mornings with Cindy on 980 CKNW.
1: talk about what's going on in France today. It certainly gives us a glimpse of what could happen if we don't get COVID-19 under control here in BC anyway. So they're undergoing more restrictions. Sounds like another big lockdown. And then with all of that going on on the backdrop, this morning they've had problems with a couple of terror attacks as well. So we thought good time for us to check in with Global News' European Bureau Chief Crystal Gumansing, and she connected with us earlier for an update. Crystal, thank you for joining us this morning. First off, seems like a lot of turmoil going on in in France today. What has happened in the last 12 hours or so?
2: An incredibly tense situation indeed in Nice, France. We know that as of this morning, and this is a developing story, so I just want to put that out there, that details right now are um, changing as the investigators gather more information. But at around 9 o'clock this morning, local time, an individual entered a church in Nice. Uh, He had a knife with them. There was an attack. Three people are dead police managed to detain the suspect a, a short distance away. He was shot. He is detained and in hospital right now. Investigators are on the scene. There is a large area around this church that has been cordoned off. We know that the French President Emmanuel Macron is on his way to Nice right now. There is also talk of military officials being deployed to the streets and the possibility that the terror threat level will be raised. At this point, the mayor of nice is saying that it is being investigated as a potential act of terror. Uh, and there is also reports of yet another attack in the southeast of France, in Avignon. Um, police officials are saying that there was a man with a knife who was threatening individuals. Police shot that individual. So a number of situations developing around France right now. And of course, this um, it is concerning a lot of people because of the level of violence and concern that not only um, the Muslim community is once again going to be sort of targeted as a whole for the attacks of, of a, you know, a, a single couple of people. So there is a lot of fear right now in France. Uh, you know, we're looking at the potential for more of these attacks. That's why they're... They, they could raise the threat level. Uh, we did see just recently the murder of a teacher uh, who was beheaded, and that is supposedly linked to that teacher um, sharing pictures, um, caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad.
1: So what is the reaction kind of been like then in the streets with people?
2: right now it's 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 a sense of just shock and and obviously um great concern and sadness uh you know we had the death of three individuals it follows the the murder of a, of a teacher not too long ago and it it really reminds people of the the number and uh, of attacks and and the level of violence that we saw back in 2015 where we saw numerous sort of lone what we call lone wolf attacks of these incidents in different locations there are also reports of of, uh, of a potentially linked case in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah, um, a man who was apparently arrested after wielding a knife and, and, and attempting to hurt people at the French consulate there. There have been protests around the world, and, and in fact, one is, is scheduled for tomorrow here in London. A reaction to um, the French president saying that he was going to be cracking down on extremists uh, that followed the, the murder of that teacher just the other week. And mm-hmm. so there is a feeling that You know, people are being targeted in an unfair way. And so we are seeing uh, protests uh, uh, in multiple locations trying to, um, you know, suggest, you know, why the Muslim community is being targeted here.
1: And so, of course, that comes with the backdrop of everything that's also going on with COVID 19 in France, where I understand the numbers
2: are just seemingly out of control. The numbers are incredibly high. Yeah, on Tuesday, there was a record number of deaths since April uh, 523 deaths related to COVID 19. Daily infections in France, incredibly high. We're looking at, you know, around the uh, plus. 30,000 mark. And so as of Friday, they were supposed to go into a national lockdown. That was the big announcement out of France yesterday evening. The the French president saying that, you know, it could not be avoided, that something had to be done because of the skyrocketing rate of infection and death. So as of Friday, people were being told this is a lockdown, national lockdown. Stay home. You are only to go to the shops for essential goods. You know, unless you have a doctor's appointment, you should be at home or can't work from home. People are being told yeah you can only go back outside for one hour of exercise a day. And a thing of difference that we should note here in this situation with this lockdown schools will remain open that wasn't the case hmm back in April, and they say that, um, you know, they will review these measures in 15 days. And, you know, there's a possibility here for people, a little bit of hope at the end of the tunnel. Um, The French president said if cases drop to a range of about 5,000 a day, then the measures will be eased. But as of Friday until December 1st, France is in a national lockdown. So of course, that now coupled with these ongoing police investigations, making for a very interesting and intense situation. All right, Crystal, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Take care.
1: That's Crystal Gumansing, who is our Global News European Bureau Chief, talking about what has happened. Originally, we were going to talk to her about the soaring number of COVID-19 cases that they have there and the lockdown they're about to undergo again. And then we had these terror attacks happen overnight as well. So it sounds like a very tough time uh, in France today. We'll continue to keep you updated on that.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I'm sure you've heard of psoriasis, but maybe you didn't know that about 1 million Canadians are affected by it. All over the world, it's thought that about 125 million people, that's about 2-3% to of the world's population, has psoriasis. And today is World Psoriasis Day, so we thought, let's learn more about it. Joining us now is Dr. Lauren Albrecht, a Surrey Dermatologist. Dr. Albrecht, thank you for being here. Oh, good morning, Sammy. Do people realize, do you think, how common this actually is? Um, I, you know, we, we you, you do
3: actually see ads on the uh, TV now for medications being promoted to treat psoriasis. So I think the the, the awareness has gone up somewhat. But I really do feel it, it does stay a, a hidden disease uh, to a large extent.
1: And so what are some of the kind of symptoms? Like what's the daily thing that people have to deal with when they have psoriasis?
3: Well, the, the daily thing would be, first off, the skin symptoms. So you know, psoriasis is, generally speaking, you know, inflammation in the skin and excessive buildup of the skin. So the most common form of psoriasis presents is what we call plaques. And these uh, take the form of raised, red, itchy, flaky areas that can happen anywhere on the body. Uh, commonly people you know will complain of, of itch, and I have to say for, for men coming into my office, one of the common complaints is saying that my wife is going to divorce me because I'm leaving scales all over the house and she's getting tired of vacuuming.
1: Ooh, that is a tough one then for them. That sounds pretty bad. Do we know what causes it? Um, we do not know the cause. It, there There is a, a genetic
3: predisposition um, that will uh, manifest at various times in life, so we see two main peaks of incidence in the Early twenties uh, and thirties, and, and then again in the fifties and sixties, we, we've, we've understand we've we've really come to a, a a great understanding of the mechanisms of psoriasis, and so I think one of the biggest triumphs of translational medicine, where we've taken you know laboratory research and converted it to therapies, has been psoriasis. So we've we've been able to develop very effective uh, therapies targeting specific pathways of psoriasis leading to high rates of clearance. Uh, The the difficulty being uh, we haven't come too far in terms of uh, people being able to access these treatments. These new uh, therapies, unfortunately, are very expensive and there are barriers to accessing these medications.
1: It must be so frustrating for people who suffer from this as well because they look at it and they think, well, I just need to moisturize, but that's not it.
3: That's not it, Sammy. Um No, they, it, it is, it, it's extremely frustrating. So I think the other thing that we've come to recognize uh, is just the, what, we, what we term the comorbidities of psoriasis. So clearly we can see the, the skin symptoms and understand the impact it has, uh, but we've also recognized that severe psoriasis uh, may be associated with comorbidities such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, uh, effects on the liver, and then I think most importantly, really the, the psychosocial effects, where the, the stigmatization, the embarrassment. You know, um, one of the most satisfying things in my practice is being able to take someone who's really, literally, been hiding the disease and hiding themselves for years, and have them come into the office and say, you know, I, I, I took my kids to the swimming pool, or mm. I was at the, you know, I, I went to the beach and wore, you know, shorts for the first time in, in fifteen years. So. Um, You know, it just, you know, that's, again, why I termed it sort of a a hidden disease in the sense that people really do hide both um, physically and emotionally.
1: Right. So it is a disorder of the immune system, right? It is. That's correct. Yeah. The the
3: primary drivers would be immune-based mechanisms.
1: So does stress impact that?
3: You know what it does? Um, You know, that's a hard thing to to quantify. Um, I think it, it affects a lot of skin disorders um, and, and, you know, we, it, it's hard to know what to do about it, but, but certainly I think stress does play a role.
1: So then how do people manage this on a daily basis? Like they must, there must be some depression and anxiety that goes with this.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, you know, we're finding that depression, anxiety is much more prevalent. So uh, people with psoriasis, um, you know, feelings of unattractiveness, being frustrated, embarrassed, self-conscious—those are all reported at very high levels in people with psoriasis. And then, you know, impacts on uh, on, on relationships, as uh, you know, mentioned, the you know, d- depression, anxiety. So, um, I, I think again, we're realizing—we've you know, we, we've certainly realized uh, in, in the last ten to fifteen years—that psoriasis is much more than skin deep.
1: I guess it must have been up until recently, you say we see commercials and you said, you know, we talk a lot more about it. People must have felt up until recently, though, that they were suffering alone.
3: Absolutely. Um, again, as mentioned, the stigmatization, you know, and, and people would hide. I mean, and so, um, you know, again, there's there's been surveys done. Uh, patients just say, my, my you know, these are direct quotes from patients, you know, my psoriasis dictates how I lead my life. I worry constantly about my psoriasis, and, and I would do anything to improve my psoriasis. So, so again, a huge impact that's not always uh, obvious on the surface.
1: All right. So then on this World Psoriasis Day, Dr. Albrecht, what would you like people to know about it? Um,
3: you know, I would like them to know that we do have uh, highly effective therapies. There have been you know significant advances in treating psoriasis over the last 10 to fifteen years. Um, we have uh, even new topical medications i can uh, I can use. Um, you know see see your physician, see your doctor. Um, they can potentially. You know, a go over these treatments or certainly, you know, really refer to a dermatologist. Anyone who's suffering from psoriasis who has not been able to achieve good control by using simple topical treatments really should be assessed by a dermatologist.
1: All right, Dr. Albrecht, thank you very much for your time on this today.
3: Thank you so much, Simi.
1: That's Dr. Lauren Albrecht, a dermatologist in Surrey, talking about World Psoriasis Day. About 1 million Canadians are affected by this, and you can see why. Up until recently, people felt like they were the only one suffering, and that is, as Dr. Albrecht points out, starting to change.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Hey, let's check in with our Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. Nikki, I'm so glad you're talking about this particular topic today because it's something that I have noticed for sure. I wondered if I was just seeing things, if it was like this every year and I, I just hadn't noticed
4: no. before. But as I walk around, whether I'm going to the grocery store whether I'm walking my dogs,
1: I feel like I have seen so many mushrooms this year. Yeah. Have you seen the crazy ones with the really big ones that with the red tops and the polka dots and they look like they're fake? The classic toadstool that I remember,
4: you know, drawing as a kid, right? It's, That's the iconic toadstool that you would draw. And I've seen them pop up. I, I stop and take pictures of them every time to send to my mother because I think they just look so cool. And I was they, so surprised
1: to see them. They're crazy. I know. I was, I was also out walking the dog with my daughter and we saw a whole bunch of them. And I said, did somebody put these on their lawn, like, to make it look cool? I go, because they yeah. look fake. Um, I think the common, the most, like, the technical name for it is, like, the fly agaric mushroom, but they just look, they're bright red on top, and they've got the white dots on there, and I just, they looked fake when I saw them, but I, I walk by this house all the time over the last 10 years, I've never seen them there before, but you're right, all of a sudden, there's mushrooms growing everywhere. See, good for you for actually looking up what the the real sort of Latin name of these things are. I was
4: too. I'm just going, oh, Yeah, yeah. Well, they are. They are. They've been so fascinating to see and so abundant. And I've actually noticed as well lots of signs up. I was walking in Pacific Spirit Park last week, and there was a big sign that said "Do not pick the mushrooms." And I was reminded, oh yeah, there's people out there who, for various different reasons, see all these mushrooms growing and decide. I think I should go pick some of those, you know, I've read about this online, or I've read a book about it once, or perhaps, you know, they actually are quite well educated. But again, a reminder to stay away from picking mushrooms, because it can be deceiving what you are picking unless you truly are an expert in this field. And, you know, a really good example of why it is so dangerous to pick these mushrooms is because of what is called the death cap mushroom. Are you familiar with this, Simi? I am not. No, tell me about it. So this mushroom is so incredibly dangerous, it's actually quite common as well in Metro Vancouver, in Greater Victoria, but now they're starting to see it in other parts of the province where they hadn't expected it before. So this has come up in the news because now they've detected it in Comox. So, you know, if you are a person who in Comox tends to go out and pick mushrooms, you would never suspect previously exactly that this dangerous mushroom would be growing in your neighborhood, and now it is. So really have to be so cautious about it. It's so incredibly dangerous. They say that they look like other edible types of mushrooms, which can be deceiving. Their toxic makeup doesn't change with heat. So if you cook them, it's not going to make them safe to eat. And it's believed that eating as little as half of one of these mushrooms contains enough Toxins to kill a human Ugh. and ingestion can cause liver and kidney failure. They're actually supposed to be responsible for about 90% of all the fatal mushroom incidents that happen worldwide. That's
1: crazy. Uh, the other thing too I've noticed about mushroom picking is that I think it becomes a, a bit addictive for people, right? It's this great thing. It gets you outside. I noticed it's become way more common. Um, my husband does it. He goes picking pine mushrooms, uh, particularly up north um, where he spends some time. Like it's, it, it, once you start doing it, I don't think you can stop. I know
4: very little about mushroom picking, Simmy, so oh. <laughs> I didn't know that it could be addictive. I do recall you saying before, though, that your husband picks these massive pine mushrooms, mushrooms, though.
1: Yeah, and pine mushrooms sell. They're quite expensive. So he knows there's a whole community of people that pick them, particularly in parts of the north because they grow there wild. And he can pick pounds and pounds. And so I, I had to take a picture for him at uh, my local little grocery store recently at a Sun Given because they were selling boxes of organic wild pine mushrooms. And it was like a two pound box or something. And it was like $50. Whoa. I know. Might have actually been like a one pound box, but it was like $50, but it was super expensive. And I couldn't believe it. And there's a lot of people out there who love to pick these, not just as a hobby, uh, but they make a little money on the side. Clearly, Nikki, Uh, you are missing out. You know what? I'm still going to stay safe
4: and not touch. I remember being a kid and always being told, you know, don't pick the mushrooms, don't go near the mushrooms. And that's something that's kind of just stuck in my mind ever since. Plus, I just love the way that they look as they grow around the neighborhood. So, you know, I I do tend to just just leave them alone. But it's always stories like this that reinforce in my mind, you know, what my parents told me when I was a kid, which is don't touch the mushrooms. So for me, you know, I never really did look up the various types that are locally grown that, you know, you could, could be edi- edible. But, you know, I you do know? think it's kind of neat that people do this. But at the same time, I, I don't know, I'm a little too nervous to do it myself.
1: I'm with you on that, too, because I think I would make the mistake. I'd be that person who makes the mistake out there. I guess it kind of divides people into two groups, those that would eat the puffer fish if it was on the menu and those that would not <laughs> eat the puffer fish if it was on the menu. Would you eat one? No,
4: Would you trust the restaurant? So the thing with the puffer fish, if I remember correctly, it's
1: that it has to be cooked perfectly, otherwise it's poisonous, right? It has to be cut perfectly off of the fish, and it has to be, yes, absolutely perfectly cut so that the toxins don't get into the piece that you cut. No, I would not <laughs> eat the puffer <pepper> fish. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're in the no category as well? I am actually in the uh, no category on that one. That just seems like too many Chances. By the way, did you know that when it comes to mushroom picking, you're allowed to do it on provincial crown land without a permit, but you're not allowed to do it in a provincial or national park? Again, this changes
4: nothing for me, Simi, because I will not be out there picking the mushrooms. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm too, yeah, I just, you know, I hear you know, stories about this death cap mushroom. They say, you know, that the color makes it a little bit tough to identify, the, the shape of the changes. Did you know this mushroom was even allegedly responsible for the death of Roman Emperor Claudius in 54 AD, as well as... Hmm. Roman Emperor Charles the Sixth in 1740. This mushrooms killed famous people. Simi, I'm not going to be out there
1: playing with fire. I think, uh, speaking of fire, I think you're um, you're going a little too off the deep end on this one because it turns <laughs> out. What about morel mushrooms? Because morale mushrooms are delicious, and right now in BC, in the last two years, we've had an abundance of them because they tend to thrive after a fire. So because of all the wildfire oh, activity we've had, it, it's been crazy, busy morel mushroom picking uh, in certain parts of the province. That's probably why you're seeing more people do this as well. It makes a big difference. Interesting. Hey, again, look, if you know what you're doing and you're out there doing it,
4: I do think that that's kind of neat. I think it's kind of cool. I just don't trust myself enough to do oh, it, it that's
0: myself, that's especially
1: to... when I hear stories like this. Thank you very much for that, Nikki.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Let's talk about now what has been going on at the Cullen Commission this week. Of course, that is the inquiry looking into money laundering here in B.C. And boy, has it ever started to get interesting this week because we're hearing testimony from different people who saw things, who reported things. And it's just raising more questions. Joining us now is Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper to talk more about this. Good morning, Sam. Morning, Sydney. This must be so interesting for you to observe that you're now out in the open, seeing people testify and saying things that we kind of just heard anecdotally for years. That's
5: right. Well, uh, for a number of years, I was uh, obtaining confidential documents uh, that were pointing towards these allegations, sometimes very redacted documents documents. But uh, we knew that uh, investigators had concern about these six-figure casino chip buy-ins with the duffel bags of cash. We're talking about $200,000 a pop, up to 800000 uh, 800, That's almost a million dollars. And this is what we heard this week. We've heard that Lottery Corp investigators really had a problem with these uh, duffel bags coming in, dropped off in a parking lot. The gambler would uh, cash it in for chips at the cash cage. Uh, and yesterday it got really interesting because a Lottery Corp former manager of investigations really got a grilling about the differences. He had with his subordinates who were very concerned about this activity. We heard one of his subordinates warned, but look, there's large scale money laundering going on because loan sharks are bringing in these duffel bags to VIP gamblers who can pay them right. back in different form- forms of currency. That's money laundering. And so uh, the manager, Gord Friesen, was challenged by the commission council. Don't you have a problem with that? Uh, over and again, uh, the, this manager said, well, it could be suspicious, but we didn't have uh, proof that this is criminal activity. It reached the point where uh, a really dramatic uh, moment, the council asked directly again, look, uh, what, can you give me any legitimate means that someone would have $800,000 in $20 bills? Uh, This uh, manager's answer was, well, maybe they just sold a home. So
1: that's that's unbelievable, Sam, when I heard that. I had to read that twice to make sure I had read that properly. It was an
5: unbelievable answer. And another dramatic moment was when the council uh, said, "Uh, can you tell me more about that? And the the manager said, actually, I have I've gone to the bank and I've gotten a lot of money in $20 bills. And uh, the, the commission council pushed more. What was the circumstance oh, this manager was a former drug trafficking investigator. He got the money for an undercover drug probe. At that point, the commission lawyer just said, thank you. No more questions on that one.
1: Oh, boy. Okay. And they also admitted this week, some of the people in charge, that they had been violating the rules, right? That they weren't reporting large transactions like they were supposed to be.
5: That's right. We heard yesterday that a great Canadian's River Rock Casino had For themselves, set a threshold that they weren't going to report suspicious transactions below 50,000. That's not the rules of Canada's anti money laundering authority. They set it for themselves. So, again, uh, BC, uh, the lottery court manager, knew about it. He was grilled about it and he said, Yes, I knew that was a violation of FinTrack's laws. Uh, We heard from another government lawyer, Did you know that it happened for four years after you were warned about it? He said, I have no idea. But again, what we're hearing is uh, there's been some whistleblowers that have been, you know, coming forward with these details. We blew the whistle. No one paid attention. And that's exactly what we've heard this week. Another uh, key point we've heard is that uh, in the early days in the Richmond Casino, managers knowingly allowed known loan sharks to operate because it was good for business. This is according to former surveillance uh, staff of the company. And this corroborates what we've reported at Global News from whistleblowers before.
1: No kidding. this That's what gets me about all of this is that, and it's ironic for you, I'm sure as well, because we got nothing but denials, right, in the media for years that this was a problem. And now we're hearing, no, there was definitely a problem. What is the justification, Sam, that some of these people who were in charge were using to not even look into this stuff?
5: Well, that, that's getting into the nitty-gritty technical details. I just want to agree with you on a point that absolutely, for years in the media, there were some very strong reports, reports pointing to these whistleblowers. And again and again, the government, uh, they might say, okay, we'll take a look, but uh, it just continued. The casino companies were challenging these reports with lawsuits But we've heard this week from the investigators citing their notes this was happening. The justification is uh, the people inside the casinos or the lottery corp will say, look, uh, the law was you observe, you report, but you can't stop these transactions. But, you know, we're hearing commissioned lawyers already really starting to chip away and challenge at that point because it seems ridiculous that you can't... uh, Tell a gambler, no, you got that 500000 in 20s from a guy in a parking lot. You can't bring it in. It just seems ridiculous that they couldn't stop it.
1: Oh, absolutely ridiculous, too. So does the underlying theme here seem to be that they just they wanted the money, right? They wanted the business.
5: What I'm hearing so far is uh, absolutely the, the, the reasonable person looks at it and says they wanted that business and they were going to find a way, you know, even if their lawyers said, well, report it and, uh, you know, the, you've done enough. I'm sure we'll hear the commission lawyers see if that was the rationale.
1: Okay, so what happens now in the days ahead at this uh, inquiry?
5: We're expecting today to to hear from another Lottery Corp investigations manager uh, that, that faces a strong allegation. One of his subordinates says that this manager wanted him to fake a VIP gambler's occupation on a form to go to Canada's government. So that would be very serious. Yeah. Uh, the, only, the only way that you knew this money coming into the casino was legitimate was if the gambler claimed some form of uh, legitimate income or occupation. So if someone was told by their boss to fake a FinTrack form, I mean, that's a breach of some sort of law, if true.
1: Yeah, exactly. So more to come on this. I feel like now this is what it's all been leading up to, Sam. It must feel that way for you, too, as well. Like, we've been waiting. They did all the, you know, the things behind the scenes. Now we're actually hearing the testimony.
5: Absolutely. I mean, and this is why the commission, uh, I feel, was necessary, because we got a lot of denials, a lot of uh, people turning their head and saying, not me. Now we're hearing otherwise.
1: We sure are. Sam, thanks so much for the update. Thanks, Cindy. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. He's done amazing work on that money laundering file. And he's absolutely right. And now this is the time right now with the Cullen Commission, the hearings that are going on where we are getting firsthand the testimony and the stories that we suspected For quite a few years now. The reason why we're having the inquiry in the first place is because there were way too many anecdotal stories about questionable money laundering behavior at local casinos. And this is now confirming it. I mean, can you imagine somebody brings in $800,000 into the casino in $20 bills? And the reaction of the manager is, and he testified to this to say, Well, we don't know where that money came from. It could have been from a legitimate source. He could have sold a house or something. That's what the manager said. Not even curious enough to go, hmm, maybe we should just flag that just to, you know, be on the safe side. Nothing like that at all, which is why we find ourselves in this situation now, right? We will definitely be checking back in with Sam as the Cullen uh, Commission continues.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, BC is going to need all the help it can get to pull itself out of this economic pandemic situation we are in. So the Federal Minister of Economic Development is actually going to be outlining the Liberal government's vision to help out BC with that. That's going to be happening at a virtual summit today. And to learn more about that, we're joined now by Melanie Jolie, the Minister of Economic Development and Official Languages. Thank you very much for joining us.
6: It's a pleasure, me. Great to be with you this, this morning.
1: So what is BC going to hear about today? What kind of help can BC expect?
6: Well, we know that uh, actually um, when we look at the economy of BC, it is different from the West. And I've seen that from uh, being close to the ground. Actually, my last trip before the start of the pandemic uh, was... Uh, last, uh, end of uh, February. And at the time, I was talking to the tourism industry and to the BC uh, Tourism Association, um, which is headed by Walt Judas. Uh, and we we're seeing the, the, the decrease in the Chinese tourists coming in, and actually the drops in, in uh, even the revenues at the uh, Vancouver Duty Free. Uh, and so since then, we, we know so much have, has happened. But um, as a government, as a federal government, usually we very far from, uh, because of our jurisdiction, very far from people's everyday lives. But during this pandemic, things changed. We came up with the CERB, with the wage subsidy, with the rent support and all. And we want to do more, be closer to the ground and be closer to the reality of people in B.C.
1: So does that mean reaching out to the tourism industry here in B.C.? Because it could certainly use the help.
6: Of course. So, clearly, we want to do two things, Simi. We want to be closer to the ground in BC. I think we can have really a much more tailored BC economic development approach. Um, We have an approach for the West, but we know that BC and the prairies don't have the same type of economies and actually... The, even the geography is different. So I think as a federal government, we ta- we have to take stock of that. And definitely, uh, we want to uh, to make sure that we have a, a much more targeted approach for BC and BCers. Is that going um, to be an and- approach
1: for the entire country then? So is the federal government now saying we have to do something different region by region?
6: Well, we do so. And 50 years ago, we started to have an approach that is different per region. Uh, but we've always seen, you know, the, the West um, as one having one economic development agency, which is WD, uh, Western Economic Diversification. It was created in the 80s. And during this pandemic, uh, it's been extremely, extremely helpful. And just for BC, it has protected 9,000 jobs. Alone, plus everything we've done through the wage subsidy and the other liquidity measures that entrepreneurs know a lot about. Um, but I think that in this context, uh, while the West is going through different uh, different issues, which are different than Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, and and BC, I think we can do more. Uh, and to take stock of the fact that basically things are different from from right. a province than from another. And to your other question regarding tourism, since the tourism sector is so important in BC, and uh, I was talking to people on Vancouver Island yesterday night again, we we know we have to be much more targeted in our approach. Uh, we've come up with some very large measures, which I've mentioned already, but we know that there are issues with, with fixed costs. Uh, we know that tourism operators are going to uh, not only difficult times. This is a question of survival for them. So we've heard their 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 call for help, and we'll be there, uh, standing side by side to, okay. to help them grow and weather this this pandemic.
1: So are those some of the announcements, and then that we can expect to hear in the near future?
6: Well, definitely, this is what I'm working on, and this is what I'm uh, working on with my colleagues Zan, which I. I, I was, again, talk, talking to last night and, and also uh, Carla Qualtro and Jonathan Wilkinson were very, very much aware that we need to do more. Uh, and at the same time, we've been there since the beginning of the pandemic. We are here now and we will continue to be there.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning.
6: It's a pleasure to see me. Have a great day. You Have a too. Great day, folks.
1: That's Melanie Joldi, Minister of Economic Development and Official Languages, talking about the more targeted approach they say they're going to be taking. Now, if I were in the tourism industry, I would take some comfort from those words, although I know you want to see concrete action. You want to see the programs. You want to see the grants. You want to see the help. But it does... Sound like that's the direction they are headed in. I mean, she mentioned the tourism industry several times there. So we'll have to check in, obviously, and find out what kind of supports the industry can expect in the weeks and months ahead.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So coming up uh, this afternoon for the usual health briefing that we get today, it's going to be in person, Dr. Bonnie Henry. And for the first time in a while, uh, Adrian Dix, the health minister, will be uh, joining the briefing as well. But they're also going to be having it in Surrey. Now, that is very different. Why are they having it in Surrey? Because we know that the recent dramatic increase in COVID-19 cases and the spread of cases that we are seeing has been linked to gatherings in Surrey, particularly, as Dr. Henry pointed out, weddings and funerals. So what is going on there? We wanted to talk more about that. So joining us now is Grinder Mann, lecturer in the Department of Asian Studies at UBC. Grinder, thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Samia. Thank you for having me on your show. Well, let's talk about these gatherings that we're hearing about. Uh, we're talking about a large number of people getting together for weddings and for funerals. Is this unusual?
7: Um, this is not very unusual overall, because if we're, if, we're talking about, if we're talking about the South Asian community or the South Asian culture, um, especially the Punjabi culture, it's a very collectivist culture. And by that I mean a culture in which family and community is very important, Uh, relationships tend to be very close, and in times of happiness and sadness, particularly when someone's getting married or someone passes away and there's a funeral, the community comes together to support each other and to share the happiness and sadness. So overall, um, these larger get-togethers are not uncommon in the South Asian community.
1: I certainly understand that. I've experienced that myself. But how then do we get the message through that right now we can't be doing this?
7: Certainly. I, I think we've got to continue doing what we have been doing. And, and there I'd like to compliment uh, the Minister, Adrian Dix, as well as Dr. Bonnie Henry, for, uh, for the great work that they've been doing in the previous months by sharing that important information, keeping people updated on the, uh, on the facts, on the guidelines, uh, because I, I have been, I know there's, uh, I know that the the cases have been increasing in Surrey, but I've been hearing a lot of positive stories as well, where individuals are uh, are arranging smaller get-togethers um, for a community that is so um, that is so inclined to have the larger weddings, is getting together with and
8: right. uh,
7: accommodating to uh, to arrange smaller weddings and uh, and funerals as well. So I am encouraged by uh, by what. I've, seen uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry and uh, the minister do over the previous months. I think we've got to continue doing that. I am, uh, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that today's meeting will be in Surrey um, so that people will be better educated.
1: Right. Because I'm sure the people who are doing those gatherings, they think they're already compromising, right? For them, that is yes. scaling things down, but they need to understand that even this is not a good idea right now.
7: Exactly, that's true. I'm sure there's uh, there's some individuals that are making those compromises and making uh, making their gatherings smaller. And and in their minds, they might be thinking that we're we're accommodating quite a bit. Um, However, they need to uh, obviously there needs to be more that uh, that needs to be done, especially given the fact that the uh, the numbers are increasing.
1: So, what what is the recommended um, tact that you think that the health officials should take here? How to get that message through?
7: Uh, We live in a very, uh, we obviously live in a very, uh, very multicultural society, a very multilingual society. um, And uh, I'm impressed with some of the initiatives that I see uh, that are done uh, multiculturally or multilingually to get that message across to to the, different, to the various communities that reside in Surrey, uh, I think uh, I think Surrey's become a very very multicultural um, area, and there's uh, and there's several different uh, communities and cultures that reside here. Um, I think making um, and sharing the message, I think through uh, to, through multilingual media or through multicultural uh, m- uh, multicultural media multicultural channels would certainly be helpful because I know there's uh, there's different uh, there's different uh, whether it's newspapers or it's media, mm-hmm. it's uh, TV shows that uh, that members of uh, several different ethnic communities rely on for uh, for messaging. Um, and if they can uh, if they can regularly share that right. message of uh, from Dr. Bonnie Henry in uh, in multi- multilingual uh, through multilingual approaches, I think that could certainly work.
1: Well, I gotta try everything, right? Try bring everything under the tent. Uh, Gurinder, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate that discussion. Gurinder who's a lecturer in the Department of Asian Studies at UBC. Uh, We're talking about the different ways in which health officials can reach out to different communities to make sure the message is getting through that currently what's going on uh, just cannot continue. We can't have the weddings and the large gatherings and the things that have been going on, particularly in the Fraser Health region.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Of course, this weekend is Halloween, right? Lots of people excited, lots of people making preparations for how they can do this safely. On that note, I want to mention once again that we have Dr. Bonnie Henry joining us on the show tomorrow morning. It will be in our seven o'clock hour. And of course, one of the things out of many that we are going to talk to her about is the ways in which you can do this Halloween safely and the advice that she is putting forward to do that. Now, I think this also indicates, though, that people weren't really willing or wanted to give up Halloween this year. It has become this important part of our culture on October the 31st. But how did it get this way? How did it become about horror movies and scary stuff and just, like, all of that? Where did it come from? I'll well, to talk more about that, Paul Buder joins us now, a professor in the Department of English at Simon Fraser University. Paul, thanks for being here. Hi. Glad are to be here. You, are you a fan of Halloween?
8: I am a fan of horror literature and horror films. Uh, Halloween now is for little kids who come to our door
1: <laughs> that 's true, but like even they some of them wear some scary costumes too. yes, they do, uh, and some of them
8: incredibly elaborate. They get very, very excited and I mean, just near us in the mall, a huge Halloween store has recently opened it 's massive and it's it 's full of people
1: it all those always are, and they 're always out to scare you so Paul, has Halloween always been something? Uh, in history that is a scary thing where being scared is a part of it?
8: Well, uh, Halloween, I'm I'm not a historian. Uh, Halloween is mainly an American invention and it seems to have been tied to various sort of uh, rituals around the harvest and the coming of darkness, the coming of winter when uh, things start to get bad, the time of year when you start to bring the animals into the house, uh, and uh, that means your food is a problem so you need extra food, so let's go out and beg for some.
1: So when did Halloween or when did the idea of scary literature start to come into being?
8: Oh, you go way back. I mean, Shakespeare's play, Titus Andronicus, is is a bloodbath. It's a terrifying play. Uh, You go back to the ancient Greeks, you you know, the ancient Greek tragedies uh, like uh, Oedipus Rex is a terrifying play. Uh, It ends with a man gouging out his own eyes. So terror goes right back to the very roots of uh, literature.
1: Okay, so did it become more prominent or do you think, I always think of it as terms of that 19th century literature like Frankenstein and stuff like that.
8: Yeah, it, it really, the, the, the gothic uh, literature really took off the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, and it was sort of a reaction against the the optimism and rationality of the age. There so were a bunch of people who said, no, we, we don't believe the world is getting better. The world is actually very, very scary. And so you got people like Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, and then later you get people like Bram Stoker writing Dracula, uh, and you get other gothic novels like The Castle of Otranto, uh, weird, spooky stuff becomes very... Very popular, end of the 18th century into the 19th century.
1: Right, but it's kind of timeless, though, isn't it? Because some of those are still scaring us today.
8: Oh, I know. Uh, There's uh, there's still great horror movies out there and great horror literature. Uh, And some of them do very, very well. Um, uh, Huge box office successes.
1: Right, and I was thinking about the latest one, too, on Netflix, which is based on The Turn of the Screw. Yes, I haven't had a chance to watch that
8: yet. I have taught that novel back in the day, uh, and it's such a clever, clever, creepy novel with a slow build. So uh, I'm thinking maybe this weekend for Halloween I'll watch
1: the series. That's a good idea. So what are some of those timeless kind of tropes that are in these books and these films that always will scare us? Well,
8: any any sort of creature or condition or human being uh, that is not classifiable uh something that is on a boundary is it alive or is it dead it's supposed to be dead but it's moving around is he crazy or is he a genius this you know, the mad scientist anything like that where we're not sure what's going on is it there or is it not there All right i just mm-hmm. uh, watched the other day the uh, 2020 film, The Invisible Man.
1: Yes. Uh,
8: it's really good. And the, the smart thing about it is the camera will just show an empty corner of a room. And it's and scary. It's scary because <laughs> is it there or is it not there? So <laughs> anything like that, that sort of ambiguity tends to freak people out.
1: I had that exact same experience. And then afterwards I thought, man, that was genius. Because yeah, you're right. It was a very, low very, very budget. film. Yeah. yeah, low budget because I didn't have to put anything there. And right. yet our imaginations ran away with us. Exactly. Also the can it be killed or can it not be killed?
8: Yes, uh, monsters that are uh, t- keep going, that are implacable, you know, that are relentless. Uh, this is something that, you know, you, th- we've always been worried about. And you can go back to uh, Middle English literature, uh, Beowulf fighting the monster Grendel, this, this vulnerable monster that comes into the, the town hall every night and slaughters people, and no one can stop it. So, yeah, that sort of... Um, so yeah again implacable right. sort of
5: hmm.
8: monstrous continuity you know and, and if you look at the slasher films a lot of the monsters in the slasher films the Freddys and the you know michael uh, michael myers those characters they you kill them and they come back
1: that's the scary part though they're never yeah. really dead
8: they're never really dead they keep they keep bouncing back they're, they'll always be there somehow And that freaks us out.
1: So have we taken all of those things then, Paul, over the hundreds of years and kind of encapsulated all of it into now, Halloween?
8: Well, no, I don't think we have. I think Halloween has become, uh, however frightening it may have been back in the day when people were really worried about starvation and witchcraft and demons in the woods, I think now it has become something that is pretty goofy Um, when the kids go up and people dress out, dress up, very often it's for a sort of semi-comic effect or for cleverness, at least the Halloween parties that I've been to and the costumes I see, people are just either trying to do a funny gross out or just something clever. But it's not really frightening, I don't think.
1: Right, well, there's people who like to be scared, and then there's the people who don't like to be scared.
8: Yes, there's that too. Some people like horror movies, horror novels. Other people can't stand them.
1: Okay, so then, Paul, before you leave us here, I I need to know, what's a good, scary novel that I can read? A good,
8: scary novel? Um, You can go back to something like The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. A recent novel, which I thought was really good, is by Joe Hill. He's the son of Stephen King he wrote a book called The Heart-Shaped Box, oh. which I think is, is really smart uh, and very creepy.
1: Okay, I'm going to check that one out. Thanks so much for your time.
8: Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Bye. That's Paul Boudreaux, a professor in the Department of English at Simon Fraser University, talking about our fascination with horror movies and literature, how they all seem to come together at this time of year. I'm definitely going to check that Joe Hill book out for sure.